Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of At The Cap Table, where we dive into untold stories of amazing VCs all over Europe. And today I've got the wonderful Naza Metgalchi from EQT Ventures uh, to kind of talk to us a little bit about her amazing career so far and a few things around kind of founder investor relationships and a little bit more. So Naza has got kind of an atypical background for a VC. And in fact, she mentioned to me that it wasn't really kind of her intended career path. So after a number of biz dev roles at some amazing startups uh, and also at other funds, uh, Naza found herself on the investing side of the cap table, focusing on kind of seed, but mainly kind of series A plus founders at EQT Ventures. And now some words from our beloved sponsor. Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O. So Naza, welcome today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I would love to hear in your own words about EQT Ventures and a little bit about your personal focus there. Yeah, sure. So I'm happy to get started. So I'm Naza. I'm French Iranian. I'm based here in London. I've been here for 15 years. Um, I started investing at EQT now close to four years ago. Three things to know about us. We're one of the largest early stage VC funds uh, globally. We invest out of um, 1.1 billion US dollar funds investing in uh, leading seed series A companies across Europe and the US. We also tend to invest uh, when we miss the seed and series A at series B stage. We're generalists, we're sector agnostic. And then the second thing is everyone in the team is an ex-operator, ex-founder. That's the ethos of the firm. When we came together to build this firm basically three funds ago, it was very clear from the get-go that we wanted to basically um, be a bunch of people that have been on the other side of the table. And the ethos there is that it's really hard to teach people that haven't been on the startup side um, just empathy and EQ when it comes to understanding what it takes to build businesses. If you've been in a business yourself, you understand that you know at some point you focus on growth at all costs and at some point you focus on um, just like quest towards profitability. So goals and focus change all the time and just the empathy that you need with those founders is really important. And then we're part of EQT and then EQT is now a 250 billion AUM business, uh, multi-strategy uh, globally. So just having access to the knowledge of the teams here and having access to the advisors that they have is definitely an accelerant for all of our portfolio companies. Um, in terms of focus, I do a lot of fintech and software. So spending a lot of my time in um, just like software right now, whether it's horizontal or vertical, spending a lot of time on vertical AI, especially looking at healthcare for the last couple of weeks, as I think that healthcare is definitely an early adopter of AI. So I'm pretty excited about the businesses that are popping up in the last couple of quarters and the, the future ones that will 
um, happen uh, in the next couple of years in, in specific verticals where LLM can act as an accelerant to those businesses. Amazing. Um, really, really great to kind of hear a little bit about your personal focus there. And I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned about, you know, if you haven't been an operator, you can't have that EQ and that kind of empathy with founders. So I know you're at kind of one fine today and doing lots of different areas of the business or, you know, your role touched lots of different areas of the business and would love to hear a little bit from you about how, you know, that role in particular impacted the way that you work with founders now. Yeah, sure. So for people that were not in the UK, basically 10 years ago, um, one fine stay was um, and is like a consumer marketplace. Joined them at pre-series A, so I was jack of all trade, as you mentioned it yourself. Um, at some point, basically um, uh, worked on the sales side and then um, helped on the product marketing side of things. So when you go, f- when you're part of a business from series A all the way to exit, you go through like all the different stages of a company's life cycle. So it's an opportunity for you to understand how quickly things change. Um, and every single week you're reaching new goals, but it feels like a new milestone. So just the pace of execution is just really fast, which means the pace of learning things is really fast. So if, you, if you've been on that side yourself, you kind of understand what is expected and it gives you um, some sort of insight as to how you can um, kind of navigate the communication with the founders now that you're basically on the investor side. So it's definitely very useful, I would say. But, you know, if, if you want to be a bit provocative, Sav, we can talk about the fact <laughs> that whether, you know, having been a, a, an operator six years ago is still very re- relevant today. Even if you've been an operator three years ago, is it still relevant today? The way that businesses are, are, are building like their businesses today with AI is going to be fundamentally different from the way we've done it, whether it was a year ago, two years ago or 10 years ago. Um, so I even wonder if any investor can now blame or like just say that they have some sort of insights to company building if they haven't done it in the age of AI. Um, so I wonder whether that discourse is going to be relevant in the future anyway. I, I don't know what you think. <laughs> well, I, you know, that's really interesting. I often think that advice has got an expiry date and I reflect on this a lot sort of in my own role as well. And the way, like you say, the way that things are built now is not how they were even kind of four or five years ago. And what will they be in the future? One thing I think about uh, is that, you know, any investor, particularly junior investors, should think about going back into startups and kind of having that hybrid career of dipping in and out if they want to become a stronger investor. But on the other hand, I also think about that um, it it was on the... um, Ferguson Union Square Ventures, it's got a really great post which talks about, you know, two different types of investors. One's kind of this operator type and then the other is kind of more of the, I guess, what you might think of as a typical late stage investor of, uh, you know, someone who's got a finance background um, and has always come from a consultancy and, and how how there's kind of value there as well. I guess there's a third profile that we might see and, you know, you raised the point there about how AI will change things. Well, I think there'll be kind of more of those product-focused builder type of investors in the future who can, I think, probably really help move the needle for some companies, particularly at an earlier stage, if they've built those products. I don't know what you feel. Yeah, ultimately, I think the most important when you're setting up a VC fund and you're thinking about who you're bringing around the table, you need different flavors. You have a thousand different type of flavors when it comes to founders. 
by definition, you will need 100,000 different types of investors as well. We can't just look at one mold and, and basically say that's, that's the type of investors that we want to hire. You have amazing investors out there um, that I respect that haven't done anything else besides just investing, that joined basically a VC firm right after college and have built a tremendous portfolio and tremendous like reputation. And any founder out there would love to work with these people just because they managed to spot some amazing founders really early on and they help those businesses grow over time. So I think that's really exciting. And then equally, you have some investors that have had um, a career as founders or operators that have basically now become DC and maybe they're really um, exciting to work with as well with founders. So I think my view is we need a mix of those and everyone is bringing, you know, the, that one thing that they're really strong at around the table. And, and if some of your audience is today is like aspiring, like investors try to think, you know, what is your superpower? What is the alpha that you're bringing to a VC team? Um, when you're interviewing in like, uh, with VCs today, try to figure out, you know, around that table today, who, who is already kind of owning what, um, and try to understand what's their gap and whether, whether you can fill that gap, whether it's with your experience in a specific sector, let's say fintech, or whether it's with a functional background, if you have a product background as an example, or, or if it's that you have, maybe you're very well connected and you have a network that they don't have access to, whether it's a network in a specific geography, or it's a network with, you know, alumni of, of, of unicorn businesses where we think they're going to grow out and they're going to, they're going to grow some businesses. So what's your edge? What's your superpower? I think these are really important questions, regardless of what's the career path you want to take. I love that way of thinking about things. You know, I think we often say that founders have to have an edge, but but so do so do VCs, and you can sharpen that and change it over time. And you know, obviously, you've been kind of on the to kind of take it back to sort of your your career. You know, you've been on the the startup side. You've also kind of been of biz dev at some some kind of really big funds you know eqt being one of them and then then before that kind of index um did you have an end game in mind when you were kind of choosing these roles yeah so um in terms of like career planning i think the the, the main uh criteria behind every single decision for me has been people um, ultimately, it doesn't really matter where I work, what's that brand. For me, what's the most important is who am I going to spend my time with? Who is it that I'm going to learn from? And that person specifically, you know, what is that? What is their superpower? What is it that I can grasp as much information um, basically from? Like for me, that's that was the most important. So when I think about what led me to move to the investing side of things full time, it was this man called Lyle Fong, and he was a serial entrepreneur he had this entire career basically in the US. He started a bunch of different businesses, some consumer, and the last one was uh, an enterprise software called Lithium. Um, he raised money from the likes of Benchmark and then he sold his business. So I thought this someone that has US style thinking and investing, someone that has been a founder, someone that has seen the whole life cycle that started businesses, but also sold businesses and that is bringing a very refreshing eye to the European ecosystem, it would be very stupid of me to not follow this person uh, 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 and basically go around town and fly to all these places in uh, in Europe to find the next big thing. So um, that's that's just one example of the last time I made a career decision and how it was basically dictated by the person that I would be spending my time with uh, more than the brand specifically, I would say. 
given that that Nile was so kind of instrumental in your career and your thinking, how how did that influence sort of your personal thesis when it comes to investing in startups? Yeah, I think that takes time, right? You can't start in this role thinking that you know it all. Everyone's growing and learning. Even my most experienced um, colleagues that have the longest tenure basically in the job are still learning. You need to have a beginner mindset in this job. Pattern recognition doesn't really work. Every single company is different. Even if in hindsight, you're trying to justify why you invested in this business that became a unicorn and that succeeded, it's, it's fake in my view. Every single company is different. So his way of looking at businesses was not necessarily my way of looking at businesses. And my way of looking at businesses also evolved over time. And I think that's totally natural. There's three vectors that you spend a lot of time on as an investor when you look at businesses is the founders, so the founding team. Second is the market and third is traction. And obviously, these are like three vectors as a Series A investor. Probably it won't be the same if you're a pre-seed investor and you first stick it in. There's barely any traction anyway. And it's it's probably also not the same exactly when you're looking at later stage growth investments. I spent a lot of time on founders when I started. And obviously, like my framework has developed over time and has sharpened over time. Um, I now look at basically like four, five attributes very carefully and spend a lot of time on those and happy to develop on that. Uh, if you think yeah, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that would be brilliant. Sure. So I think from like, uh, what are the attributes of like successful founders, or at least what I've learned in the last four years, A, I think it's how determined they are. You know, however smart you are, if you're not determined and if you're not ambitious, you're just not going to achieve as greater things as the person next door who is very ambitious and very determined. Um, so for founders, the way the way it's reflected is like, what is it that they're that they're trying to prove and to who? Um, we have the saying, which you perhaps already have also, which is like, what is your chip on your shoulder? And it can be anything that is related to their upbringing, you know, whether it's overcoming like poverty, divorce, moving around, whatever that is, or it can be something more recent, whether, and, and an example of that is um, just backing founders that have really strong knowledge of an industry, having been in the incumbent and being very frustrated at, you know, the speed of execution of that incumbent and think that there's this new approach that they can take that will revolutionize how things are being done in that industry. And they feel very determined and they just want to prove their ex-employer wrong. You know, that's one example of like um, chip on chip on their shoulder. And, and when you talk about determination, like another example of that is I was listening to Brian Chesky on a podcast recently. I don't know if you listened to Lenny's podcast. I mean, it's so it's so good. Um, I think actually we were, we were speaking about it a couple of weeks ago and I listened to the whole thing and I've gone back and listened to little excerpts. Um, but no, go on, carry on. I don't want to interrupt you. I think, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack from this podcast for sure. But one of those that made me react on the spot where, was when he was telling the story that he was having dinner with Sam Altman and he was basically telling Sam Altman, I still feel like I have a lot to prove and that I haven't made it. And I thought, how absurd is this? This is basically the founder and the CEO of a company that has that has like basically a 90 billion market cap. It's probably one of the most well-known consumer brands out there globally. And this man is telling us that he still, he hasn't made it yet. So I'm looking for someone that has that bigger mindset and that is so hungry and that can't even define when they will be able to let it go just because they're so hungry to achieve something great. 
that's point one. The second is the sense of urgency. I think I mentioned that so many times just in the last couple of minutes we're talking. After doing what I do for like the last four years, what I notice is the companies that get out of the pack are those that really execute faster than the rest of the pack. And that's a topic that I talk a lot with a founder called Sammy from Hoffy. He always says building companies comes down to two things. One, making decisions and two, executing on them. His view and a lot of people's view is that speed is more valuable than accuracy. Almost all wrong decisions uh, can be fixed, but the progress compounds with speed. So as an investor, it's really important that we dig deeper. At least we have the opportunity and the luxury of doing that at Series A. Asking the founders, show me the thought process when it comes to making decisions and how you execute on them. You know, show, show me all your product releases in the last year. I, I want to see basically uh, velocity, right? And I don't care whether you failed after you released those like new features or, when, or any decision you made. The most important is you manage to gather new data and that new data is learning and you just need to carry on with that speed of learning. I think that's something that I noticed. noticed. So that's number two. And then three is they're magnetic. And by magnetic, for me, it's they're amazing storytellers. When you think about it, at pre-A stage, you don't really have much to prove, um, you know, to show people that um, joining their company is, is a safe bet, or at least it's a bet worth taking. So some of the best founders out there are just amazing storytellers. They manage to convince people to join their journey. So whether it's employees, whether it's investors, whether it's advisors, whether it's anyone that is basically in the extended team, they manage to do that. And the, here the test is, if I have one shot, one introduction that I can make to the operator that I respect the most, would I make that introduction to that company? Would that CEO be able to convince the most um, trusted person that I know that is uh, an operator to join that, that company? So I think that, that for me is a, is a test. Do you, have a, do you have an example of kind of that founder magnetism that you can, you can share yeah. with us. So um, Joel from Sana is, I think, one of the most magnetic leaders you would meet. And when you meet him, and I, I, I don't know if you met him, but um, I mean, S Swedish-based, but um, spending a lot of time in London and in the US now, it's a Series C stage company, um, enterprise software around the learning space. He's just very magnetic. People want to follow him. And he does it in such a natural way. It doesn't feel like it's rehearsed. People want to help him quite naturally, organically. He doesn't need to ask for help just by being himself. People want to help him. So I think that's, that's an amazing attribute because it can, again, act as an accelerant to your business. You get amazing people good at, that, at their own craft that want to help you. So Joel is definitely one I, I would recommend you to, to check out and, <laughs> and ideally meet uh, one day. So, so, you, yeah, so, absolutely. so you, you so you get the magic. And then the fact <laughs> is like the best founders know their superpowers. So Joel's superpower is he's magnetic. Um, but they also are very aware of where they are weak. They're not scared of hiring people that are much better at them um, in those specific functions. So way of looking at it is they're, they're not insecure. And, you know, there's this fa famous saying, which is like A, pl a player players hire A players, but as soon as you hire a B player, then, then they go out and hire C players. So they know that they have to surround themselves with people better than them, and they're not scared of it. So I think these are a few attributes that I think I've honed on a lot, and that is just based on, like, my own self-reflection and, and, and data of just, like, investing for the last four years 
uh, and I tend to spend a lot of time digging into these attributes when I spend time with our founding team. Right. One thing I can absolutely resonate with is that final one just around um, around kind of hiring great people and, you know, trying to seek, if you don't know kind of your own strengths or weaknesses, seeking out help so that you can do that work and, and, and realise it. And then the other one is something uh, that you mentioned earlier on, which I guess I can sum up in a, in a in a phrase that we used to use when I was an entrepreneur first, which is productivity is traction for teams, where, you know, when there's nothing to measure, there's kind of output and then, you know, learning. And, you know, even if even if kind of that week has been a week of, of failures, well, what can you take from that? And how can you how can you kind of move forward? It's a step. It's a step in the right direction, even if that step feels like a misstep. Yeah, it's something I, I I can totally get on board with. One thing that we spoke about earlier, you know, before we started recording, was this idea around founders constructing their cap table and the importance of sort of diversity to that. I've seen time and time again how useful a set of angels can be for a company. I would urge any founder to spend time thinking about who they need around the table. So think that you just think about it. You're a coach and you need to set up basically like the best team. Think about it like a sports team. You need all sort of attributes around the field. So you need to be very int- intentional about it. So who do you want to have that is top 1% in the things that you're not great at and that you would need over time based on the type of company that you're that you're starting. Uh, it takes time. You will need to hustle to get to the right people, but I think it's worth the exercise. Um, and when I think about one of our latest investments, a, a company that is called Kota, so they enable any business to source and manage like financial benefits, like pension insurance and and other products for an API. When these guys came together and they thought about uh, their cap table, who they could bring as angels in addition to institutional funds, they brought together unicorn founders or senior execs of unicorn founders that have scaled successful businesses in that specific category, so HR and finance. So basically C-levels and founders of businesses like Personio. And then um, they also thought about the first leg of their growth um, of their business will happen with remote companies. So they started thinking, who are some well-known remote companies out there? And again, looking at the founders and the C-levels and just like senior execs of these remote companies that will be practitioners and users of their products, um, as an example, they brought uh, the founders of remote.com, right? So, and then they thought, oh, but we're basically building a developer product. So they brought basically the head of developer relationship at Stripe, who is now the head of developer relationship at OpenAI. So try to look at your business, try to look at what are the ingredients of your business from who is it that you're targeting, that customer base, think about the go-to-market that you're going to apply, and then think about basically you want to have people that are three, four steps ahead of you from a company building perspective that could help you identify some of the mistakes that you're about to do and make sure that you don't do them because they're really good at identifying those ahead of time. So this is an example of like a company that I feel when you look at their cap table and how they're leveraging their angels to help them, it's it's a mix of people that is very much suited to the business that they're building. And, you know, this is a provocative statement, but uh, discussing kind of with a, with a founder the other day, and they said that their investors were the most useful at the point in time that they gave, they wrote a check. And I disagree with that, but I would love to kind of 
understand kind of how to make the most of your investors, you know, so that you know, they're, they're people who've got great networks, they can do so much more than just write the check and sort of leave you to it. But how do you kind of milk that? <laughs> I, like, I like the concept of milking for sure. Um, so I think, look, the founder investor relationship is, uh, can be a, a subject of our conversation for an entire podcast, but it's like around how do you milk investors? I mean, A, you need to have a great relationship with the investor that is representing the funds, right? And it needs to be a, a relationship that is based on trust and that takes time and it requires everyone around that, um, around that table to be vulnerable. But if you're looking at really tactical help and not just like strategic relationship building type help, think about it that way. At pre-series A, we always recommend our founders to put together monthly updates following a specific um, specific guidelines. And then uh, happy to tell you basically what's the format of that monthly updates. Uh, and the reason monthly update is exciting is because as an investor, you can then basically easily forward it to the rest of your team and they can get an update as to what is that that is going on and also get a really good understanding of how they can help. So, so the, the format varies, but I think a lot of people have been writing about this type of format. Always start reminding people of what you do. At pre-series A company, or quite often pre-product market fit, the company evolves, the product evolves. Every single conversation you're having helps you basically shape what is it that you're building. And I think it's really important for investors that are not deep into the business as much as you are to just use the same vernacular that you're using to describe what is it that you're building. They will also pitch your company without you knowing all the time, uh, whether it's to potential um, candidates um, or to other investors or just other people in the industry. So it's very important that everyone is up to date as to what is it that the company do and just using the, some, the same terminology. And then basically it's a series, um, sh you know, show us the series of highlights and then it's a series of lowlights uh, that has been happening in the company for the last month. And then it's a number of asks and make the ask extremely easy, right? So if one of the asks is around, um, hey, we're now hiring for this person, just make sure that you have the link to the JD and even put together maybe like the blurb that you want basically people to use whenever they're sharing that uh, JD to someone else. Um, then you always need to share a set of metrics in the company and then there's you know, some metrics that are very specific to the company and you have some metrics that are hygiene, right? It's like um, your monthly burn and how much runway you have left based on your burn. That's that's very hygiene for a series A, for a pre-series A company. Just coming back to like how to milk, if you have that set of requests, it's very easy basically to then forward it. And I've seen some companies be really good at driving some FOMO with their set of investors by putting in their monthly updates, shout outs to people that have actually actioned something. And investors are just like human beings, which means that, and they're quite- Just cool. like. <laughs> or maybe that's all that I know now, but they're very FOMO driven and they're very competitive, which means that if I've seen that my name is not there and other names are there, I will make sure that my name gets there in the next update. I will work very hard for my name to get up there. So that's, that's like a hot tip to get people going uh, at helping you, although naturally you want them to help you organically, but the reality is you, you, you got to play on some of these incentives as well and some of these traits of, um, that investors have. I love the simplicity of that, that kind of playing on, on human emotion. Also love the simplicity of kind of the, the kind of uh, update you outline. 
do you think that this is a format that scales really neatly? No, absolutely. Like, absolutely not. You need to evolve. Like, as your business evolves, your board material is going to evolve. Um, so I'm talking about monthly updates just because I think when you're pre-Series A, you want to have more regular, shorter updates with your investor group. And as the company grows, you want to have proper board meetings that are perhaps a tiny bit longer um, and that are every like two or three months. And that's, you know, ideally you, you follow with like a, an opportunity for everyone to mingle socially as well. And, and just a board pack really much evolves based on your um, company evolves. As an example, like after Series A, um, closer to Series B, we get to see boards where we see a lot of the senior execs in, in those board meetings. Like the, the CEO is, has equipped themselves with like amazing people around them that are responsible for specific functions. They want to empower them to come and show to the board what they've been up to and what are like um, some of the critical things that they're working on. And it's an opportunity to A, empower these people, B, uh, make sure that the investors have relationship with other people in the team and not just like the founding team or the CEO. So it, yeah, that, that relationship evolves and the, and the whole board material and updates also evolve as your company grows. The thread through this has been, for me at least, part of it's been about exceptional leadership. And that whole thing of, you know, you're hiring people who are better than you. You want to empower them in front of kind of your board and and, and give them ownership. That just kind of sinks throughout everything that, that, that you've, you've been saying. One of the questions that I get from a lot of pre-seed funds that I sit on the LPAC of is what on earth is going on with the with the Series A market? And I thought, you know, in, in the couple of minutes that we've got left, we'd love to sort of get your views on, you know, what is the bar at the moment in terms of what you consider to be a great Series A? It, what are investors like EQT looking for here? Yeah, sure. So um, Series A are definitely back. Um, <laughs> I think when the market downturn started seven, eight quarters ago, I think if if you were a seed founder and if you were surrounded by great people and if you listen to their advice, you should be in a great situation today. Obviously, it depends on you know what is it that you're building, if you're addressing a real pain point for, for a customer out there. But if you've listened to that guidance, you've dialed back basically on spending, you go back to first principles, the reality is a lot of Series A are going out now and I'm expecting more of them to happen also in 24. That Series A market definitely started heating up again since the summer, I would say. As a fund, we've done two investments just in the last quarter, and we're just expecting more of them to come. The Series A of today have definitely more meets. They are, they're not the Series A of 2020, 2021. Um, what I'm seeing out there, again, very dependent on, you know, what is the type of business that you're building is like, businesses that are close to two to three million AR uh, for software businesses, for sure. And businesses that are growing 3X, businesses that have a burn that is controllable. What you want to show is that your burn has been going down for the last couple of um, quarters, for sure. Even if you haven't hit what people want to see, there's at least a path as to how you're going to get there. And you have enough cohorts to show that this is not something that you've only implemented one or two quarters ago and that it's going in the right direction, but it's something that you've been working on and honing on for the last couple of quarters. But besides like, you know, specific numbers, like I think the core of a Series A still stands, which is obviously what's the vision, what's the team, what's the timing, what's the markets. But investors want to see early signs of product market fit. So are you force feeding your view of the world 
um, and product to a set of customers? Or is it that you have real demand and you have real customer pool? I don't really care if you've hit 1.5 million or 2 million, as long as I can see that you have early evidence and early signals that there's product market fit there. I think uh, that's the most important. What is it that you've unlocked that we feel is kind of like done so that when we think about what is it that we're underwriting, what is like the big bet, the big bet between now and like 18 months time, there's one thing that is specific and that is not necessarily basically product market fits. That's how I would look at it. Oh, brilliant. That's, that's really helpful um, and kind of, a, a specific answer. I think it's really, really hard to kind of pin people down on 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 kind of the Series A market at the moment. But look, you know, we we've covered so many different topics today, from cap tables to kind of building great relationships between investors and founders, and kind of the evolution of your own investment pieces or how you analyze kind of companies now. And I'd like to kind of end with with a final question, which is, you know, how big a role do you think luck played? In, in your career so far? I think that's a great question. I don't think we talk about it enough. I think as investors, yeah, we don't talk about it enough. I think there's a lot of tap on your shoulder as, as investors, um, as if everything was um, super clear in retrospect. But coming back to your question of like luck in your career, many people think that great turning points and opportunity in our lives happen by chance and that they're out of our control, and that some people are luckier than others. I don't know if you're one of these people that thinks that. I fundamentally disagree with that. I really believe that you're responsible, basically, for the conditions to set luck to happen to you, and then you're responsible to take advantage of the situations that are in front of you. The way to do that is that you need to hone on the muscle, which is around creating opportunities for you. So as an example, I've been saying no to doing podcasts. And at some point I woke up one day, I'm like, well, why am I saying no to these people? Like, I'm not really seizing the opportunity to create myself luck over time if I keep saying no. Um, so I'm happy I'm doing it today as an example. But you need to create yourself the sets, the conditions for this to happen. If you're excited about this topic, my friend Christian Bush wrote a whole book around it. He's, um, he's a scholar. Um, he was a teacher at... Um, LSC, and I think he's now at NYU somewhere in the US. And he wrote this whole book around the notion of how do you unlock serendipity? Um, so I think it's really a mindset shift if you don't have it. And I really urge everyone to think about, you know, how do we apply our mindsets, you know, in our everyday lives um, in all the decisions we're taking as well, so that we create the conditions to seize the luck. I, I really, really like that as something to end on. And personally, I, I agree with you. I think you can't keep saying no because you know you need to you need to say yes try new things and you know you've tried this podcast i hope we hear many many more from you in the future great thanks so much for having me that was brilliant thank you take care thank you for listening to this special episode on the european vc if you love our show join our community by subscribing at eu.vc and now some words from our beloved sponsor Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O. T -A -C -T -Y -C .io.